Praise be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you today, Friday, January 29th. That's right, I'm recording this podcast a day early this week, and so hopefully you'll get it, uh, you'll get it showing up in your various podcast apps by tonight, Friday night, or tomorrow morning, because uh, I have a lot of events going on tomorrow, and so I wanted to make sure to get this done ahead of time, so you'll get it on schedule. So for once, I'm, uh, I'm working ahead of the clock, <laughs> but I'm a little bit under the clock too. I don't know if that's a saying. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm under the gun, I'm clock bound, <laughs> because uh, I only have an hour, I have one hour to record this podcast, and then uh, I have a, an appointment at 2 o'clock, I have a phone appointment at 3 o'clock, I have a meeting at 4 o'clock, so I suppose if I, well anyway, if I don't get it done in an hour, I could probably fill it in with some little other pockets throughout the day. But I'm going to really try to stick to the hour this week, you guys. So I've got, a, I've got a countdown timer going here on my iPad, and uh, I'm going to try to do 15 minutes for each segment and just be really disciplined and move on <laughs> when that segment is done. So we're going to see how it goes today. If this works well, I might try to use the countdown timer technique for future episodes because uh, I think it works a little better to have the podcast, you know, confined to a, to a, strict, a stricter time limit. Um, yeah, and of course, creativity always thrives within limits. That's why Chesterton says that the frame makes the picture. So anyway, uh, in light of that fact, let's dive in and I'll tell you a little bit about well, I guess first, what's been going on with me? This week has been uh, a continuation of some of the work of just planning and preparation that I mentioned last week. Uh, so I'm continuing to work on my lesson plans for the school, the seventh grade. I've come up with uh, come, up, come up with a set of parables of Jesus that I really want to focus on. It's really providential because this week, if you've been attending daily mass or watching daily mass, then you know. We've been hearing each day parables from Mark chapter 4. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's, there's not too many parables in St. Mark's Gospel, it turns out, uh, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I, I, I on some level knew, but because it's a very concise gospel. But uh, a lot of them are concentrated here in chapter 4. We get the parable of the sower, we get the seed that grows, um, sort of, you know, without are having much to do with it. God gives the growth. We have the mustard seed, and uh, we have the lamp, the parable of the lamp, which you don't put under a bushel basket, but which gives light to the whole house. And so a beautiful thing also in this chapter is that Jesus himself explains the meaning of the parable of the sower and the purpose of the parables. And even at the end of Mark 4, which we heard today at Mass, St. Mark tells us that Jesus uh, did not speak to the people except in parables, but to his disciples he explained to them in private what it meant. So there's a lot of uh, very fruitful ground there uh, to explore and to unpack with the students. So uh, I'm going to draw on all those parables from Mark 4, and then depending on how many lessons we have to cover, again, I'm still not sure how often I'll be teaching. Um, but if there continues to be time as the semester goes on, then after Mark 4, I'm going well, to jump into Mark 12 for one parable, the one about the wicked tenants who uh, have been given care of the vineyard, but they refuse to render the fruits to the vineyard owner. 
And then from there, the plan will be to go into Luke 15, where there's the famous parables of lostness. There's the lost coin, the lost sheep, and of course, the parable of the two sons and the good father, uh, the prodigal son story, which is so, so rich, so incredible. Um, so if I end up having, if I, if I can't do all these parables, that's in total seven. If I can't do all, I'll cut some out to make room for the prodigal son at the end of the semester. Um, I really want to make sure we have some time for that. But I'm getting excited about it. I asked my favorite professor, uh, scripture professor back at St. Pat's for her recommendations on some good books about the parables. And I ended up ordering two. One is just an excellent commentary on Mark. The other one is a book called Stories with Intent, A Comprehensive Guide to the Parables of Jesus. It's by an evangelical scholar named Snodgrass, I think. And uh, I just, it just arrived in the mail. It's a huge tome of a book, like 500 plus pages. So when they say comprehensive, they're really not kidding. But I've just been uh, reading kind of the introductory matter and uh, I'm pretty excited about it. So I'm gonna start diving into that soon and reading, reading what uh, Snodgrass has to say about these parables in Mark 4. So that's exciting. Doing some planning also for the RCIA breakout sessions and so forth. Uh, planning also to start a little Bible study with a couple guys in the parish. Um, and actually, that has been a real grace this week, not the Bible study, but just um, being able to make, I, I've intentionally been making some time uh, to have lunch with some different people in the parish, a, a, few, a few young guys who come to daily mass um, around my age and just trying to have a little, a little time with them and actually, one of them who I had lunch with yesterday, we had this great conversation about the, uh, the greatest affliction of our generation, right? And we both agreed that the, the greatest, um, yeah, the greatest affliction, the greatest problem for people our age is loneliness and isolation. And that led us to conclude that... Uh, kind of the, the greatest work of evangelization and like discipleship um, amongst our peers in this day and age will take place in the form of friendships and cultivating intentional friendships. Because in a, a friendship, you know, you have the power to reach someone's heart. Um, and so it, it's an investment, it's a substantial investment. You invest time in someone and uh, you share yourself with them, which is always a bit of a risk, but the rewards are commensurate to the risk, <laughs> to the investment, if you want. Because uh, by evangelizing, by discipling through friendship, which is the way that, I mean, Jesus, Jesus evangelized, you know, at different scales. So he's, he's preaching to the whole crowds, but then, of course, we see he also enters deeply into relationship with some. And those are the ones who become really converted, you know, amongst the crowds, many, many people, the majority of people who hear him preach sort of uh, maybe take it in, but they walk away and they don't follow. But the ones who become really converted and who are, are lit on fire and follow him, those are the ones who have been invited into deep relationship with him. And so, yeah, the, the, the reward is commensurate to the risk <laughs> or the, the payoff to the investment. I don't really like that language, but it's uh, maybe a helpful way to think about it. So um, 
a great, a great blessing of this week, a gift uh, for me, and I think a way that, uh, well, something that's going to hopefully bear great fruit, has just been investing in relationships more intentionally with some of these guys from the parish. Um, and so amongst, there's two, two of them, uh, and myself making three, we've decided we're going to try to do a little Bible study once a week, Tuesday mornings, and just reading through St. Mark's Gospel kind of Alexio Divina as a group where we just, not, it's not so much about commentary or scholarly, um, you know, study per se, but a kind of a contemplative Bible study, uh, which is my preferred approach anyway, of just a, a sort of going into the word with humility. Um, uh, yes, unpacking it to kind of grasp in a a full way, you know, the sensus planior, the full sense of what the word means, but then listening for how the Lord is speaking particularly to each of us and to, a, and to the group in our present circumstances, because the word is always alive and effective. So I'm excited about that too, and the hope would be that uh, our little group of three might grow <laughs> over time and even perdure after I end up leaving the parish, you know, after Mark's gospel go on and read another gospel or epistles of Paul or, you know, anything. So I'm excited about that. It seems like the Lord is, this is an area where the Lord is giving the growth and he is directing the, the uh, you know, he's just bringing this about. <laughs> it wasn't something that I had, I had planned to start. It wasn't on my to-do list, but I think it'll be good. Uh, yeah, I think it'll bear good fruit. We've also got some vocation Vocations events, discernment type events coming up. We have our monthly discernment day for my, um, what's called the Melchizedek Project, where we're trying to build a small group uh, right now just of young men who are discerning the priesthood. So that's going to be this Saturday. It's tomorrow, actually, which is part of the reason why I can't record the podcast tomorrow. It lasts all morning, beginning with Mass. Then we have breakfast. Well, we do morning prayer after Mass. We have breakfast for them which we're doing in a safe, COVID-safe way where everyone has their own sealed individual things and we eat separately, you know, and whatever. And then we'll have a little game. Um, we'll have a teaching, which I'll give to them based on uh, kind of a, a lesson plan given to us. The Melchizedek Project isn't my, my idea. It comes from Vianney Vocations, which is a Catholic apostolate for promoting vocations. So they give us lesson plans. So I'll give them the teaching, then we'll do a holy hour, and after the holy hour, half an hour of small group discussion. And the idea is that uh, the holy hour gives time for the teaching to percolate and for questions to arise in their hearts. They're really engaging with the Lord there. And then we can bring those questions or insights back to the group and have a fruitful discussion. So I'm uh, hoping that'll go well. Please say a prayer for them and for me <laughs> that, it, that it will go well. And I'm also working to establish a vocations team here in the parish. I might have mentioned that before, but there's been good progress. I've got several more people who are interested and they want to meet. Um, so we're trying to get a Zoom meeting on the calendar for the next, sometime next month. And Father Jeff, the vocations director for the diocese, has agreed to uh, address the team at our first Zoom meeting, which will be great for them because um, he's really been encouraging us seminarians to start these teams in our parishes. It'll be just nice to connect them so that uh, he can get to know the people that I've recruited, <laughs> nominated, and they can hear from him 
what the mission of the parish vocations team really is. And with this team, I want to plan, come up with a plan for the next year. So even after I'm gone, like from this August until August 2022, what are they going to do in the parish? Um, to continue supporting the young men we've got in a small group. Hopefully it'll be a stable group by then. So they can keep supporting them, maybe start something for young women, discerning consecrated life. And I don't know exactly what it'll look like, but hopefully um, once we get the team uh, solidified, we can start brainstorming, start planning, come up with a vision. Oh, it's exciting. I, I, I love this. So that's on my radar. There's also, <laughs> this next week, the, the parish school, Bishop O'Hara School, is having a vocations day. And so we're going to all get on a Zoom call. A, a bunch of priests and myself from the Eugene area are all getting on a Zoom call with the whole school. And we'll kind of give our testimonies, I think. And then uh, a parish up in Staten has asked for me to come up and be on a vocations panel. I think they're inviting some religious or different priests as well to come and... Uh, speak to their young people or, I don't know, I guess I'm not really clear what, uh, <laughs> what the purpose of the panel is, but uh, Father Jeff invited me to go, so I'm going to plan to go up this coming week. So a lot of vocations-related stuff going on uh, at the moment, and it's great. It's such important work for the church. So please keep those intentions in your prayers in the coming week for uh, the ones you know, the young men who are going to attend our Vocations Day this Saturday for the, for the children in our school, for these people up in Staten, <laughs> pray for our Vocations team, and pray for these guys who are uh, setting out into the deep with me in this Bible study, that it'll really be an occasion for the Lord to uh, strengthen our faith and light our hearts on fire um, and to receive, receive his living word in a new and effective way. So that will suffice for a little update about my life. And I, by the way, I hope you all are, uh, <laughs> that you've all had a great week and that the Lord is leading you with clarity and purpose. Now, let's jump over to the world of Shakespeare. All the world's a stage. And all the men and women merely players. This week, I read the play, As You Like It. This is one I haven't read before, um, but I have heard it referenced before. When, when I told a professor at St. Patrick's that I was doing this Shakespeare in a Year project, um, As You Like It was the first play that he thought of. And he was asking me these questions about it and <laughs> my interpretation of it. And I had to tell him, well, I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> so, uh, but, so I knew a little bit about As You Like It because of that awkward conversation with this professor. <laughs> and uh, what I remembered from the conversation is that a bunch of people go out into the forest and uh, <laughs> sort of hijinks ensue. I mean, I didn't really have a clear picture of the plot, but I did know about the forest. And so it's an interesting play. In, in a way, it's kind of like a Midsummer Night's Dream because there's this motif of characters from kind of different walks of life being taken out of their normal circumstances and transported into a different context. And the forest, of course, is kind of a romantic environment already, isn't it? It's kind of a place where, uh, I don't know, it's an enchanted place. It's a place where things outside the normal, mundane round of affairs can sort of occur, right? 
So all these characters end up going out into the forest of Arden. Now there's already a group of people living out there. And basically it's the old duke, the, the duke senior uh, of whatever, I forget where, where they are. But uh, whatever this place is, <laughs> the former duke and a bunch of his fellow lords and gentlemen have all been exiled and they're out living in the forest because the new duke has usurped the duchy, <laughs> the power. <laughs> He's taken over the realm. So all the old ones are exiled. Then, uh, but but the, the daughter of the old duke is allowed to continue living in the kingdom because she's best friends with the new duke's daughter. So those two are very close friends. Then we're also, so her name is Rosalind and her friend is Celia. Then we're also introduced to two characters, Orlando and Oliver, who are brothers. And they have a very contentious relationship. Uh, and so they are, they are, they're the sons of a deceased lord who was close friends with the exiled duke, the old duke. And so uh, <laughs> their presence is sort of barely tolerated in the kingdom. And Orlando and Oliver are, have an antagonistic relationship because uh, the father asked Oliver, the older brother, to bring up Orlando as a gentleman, but Oliver is sort of neglecting his duties. He's doing the bare minimum, but he's not really teaching Orlando He's not giving him a good education. He's not introducing him at court and things like that. He's just sort of giving him enough food and sustenance to live on and letting him work around the family farm. So there's already tension there. So Orlando breaks with his brother in a dramatic way and goes to prove his, uh, his strength, his manhood, in a contest of wrestling, which is put on by the new duke. And he overcomes the duke's champion. And in doing so, he impresses Rosalind, and, and she falls head over heels in love with him. Well, uh, the new duke ends up exiling Orlando because when he finds out that Orlando is the son of this lord who was close friends with the old duke. Do you catch the connection there? <laughs> As always, it's a complicated set of relationships. So the new duke ends up exiling Orlando in, and he goes out into the forest of Arden. Then... The new duke, at the same time, also exiles Rosalind because he ha he's this man of a sort of congenitally suspicious and choleric uh, temperament. And he's very quick to make judgments and, you know, come to hasty conclusions. So he also exiles Rosalind because he's suspicious of her. And when she was a little girl, it was okay, but she's kind of coming into her own now. And he sees too much of her father in her. And he's worried that she might be a, a political danger to him. So he exiles Rosalind as well. So Rosalind and Celia run away together, these two best friends, and they take with them kind of the, the fool, the court fool, whose name is Touchstone. They go out into the forest of Arden as well. So now you've got all these groups out there together. And uh, of course, they all end up meeting each other and hilarity ensues. But I think the great, so the great premise of the play, I think, is this. Um, it has to do with the effect of love on the soul, upon one's character. Because uh, what, what I see in this play is Shakespeare is, is contrasting the different kinds of, the different kinds of souls, <laughs> if you want. I shouldn't really say kinds. 
but the, the, the different, um, yeah, the different states of souls or the different kinds of character, maybe is a better way to say it, that are formed by different ways of living. So you have Orlando and Rosalind who are head over heels in love. And there's this hilarious ongoing uh, bit throughout the play where Rosalind, in order to run away from court, in order to escape, Rosalind is dressed as a boy, which is so common in Shakespeare's plays. The girl has to somehow escape, and so she dresses up as a man. So she's in the force. She's dressed as a, as a boy. And then she ends up encountering Orlando. Now, Orlando is madly in love with Rosalind, but he doesn't recognize her in her disguise, <laughs> which always sort of beggars belief, but anyway. <laughs> so he doesn't recognize her. Rosalind is madly in love with him. She does recognize him, but she decides she's going to do this jest, this uh, sort of a playful, flirtatious thing with him, where she, uh, <laughs> as the boy, Ganymede, she says she's going to pretend to be Rosalind, and uh, Orlando can try to woo her, and she, as Ganymede, will thereby cure him of the madness of love that he's fallen into. Uh, because <laughs> pretend, as Rosalind, as Ganymede, pretending to be Rosalind is going to, I don't know, <laughs> somehow uh, be like hot and cold toward him and uh, play with his affections and end up getting him to fall out of love again. I mean, but obvious, but that's not really her intention. Her intention is to... Uh, to flirt with him and eventually to, you know, reveal her identity, which in the end she does. So that's just an interesting circumstance. But so that's going on throughout the play. Rosalind and Orlando and this flirtatious uh, interactions between them. The interesting thing, though, is, I, I think, in the contrast between them and various other characters who seem to embody different kinds of wisdom. And so with Rosalind and Orlando, you know, you might think, you know, okay, this is just um, sort of the, the innocence, first flowering of love. And, uh, you know, it's sort of sweet and naive and whatever. There's not, there's not particularly too much there in terms of wisdom, certainly. There's great affection, but wisdom, I don't know, we wouldn't necessarily expect to find it amongst these two young lovers. But compare them now to the character of Jacques who I haven't introduced yet. Jacques is, is one of the guys who's living with the old duke in the forest of Arden. He's a worldly man. He's traveled to all sorts of different places. He's erudite. He's studied philosophy. And by his own admission, he's a melancholy guy. And he says he prefers melancholy to mirth because it's more wise to be sad and silent than it is to be full of laughter. And so he, he's a, a, a prototypical figure of uh, this kind of a, a character who has been made very grave and very serious by much study and by much exposure to the ways of the world, right? So this is the kind of character that he is. I'm trying to find right now the, uh, this particular passage where he has a conversation with Orlando i got to dig this up uh, because it's really very telling. So here we go. Much Ado About Nothing and As You Like It. Here we go. 
So they have this encounter, Orlando and Jacques. Orlando has been leaving little notes all over the forest with poems written about his beloved Rosalind. And Jacques has come across them, and he's very cynical about love. And so he, he asks Orlando in this scene, Rosalind is your love's name? Yes, just. I do not like her name, Jacques says. And Orlando replies, there was no thought of pleasing you when she was christened. Jacques, what stature is she of? Orlando, just as high as my heart. Jacques, you are full of pretty answers. Have you not been acquainted with goldsmiths' wives and conned them out of rings? In other words, your pretty answers, aren't they just self-serving? Orlando, not so, but I answer you right-painted cloth from whence you have studied your questions. We'll get to that in a moment. Jacques, you have a nimble wit. I think t'was made of Atla Atalanta's heels. Will you sit down with me? And we too will rail against our mistress, the world, and all our misery. Orlando, I will chide no breather in the world but myself, against whom I know most faults. And then finally, Jacques, the worst fault you have is to be in love. Orlando, tis a fault I will not change for your best virtue. I am weary of you. And the two end up parting ways. Interesting conversation, isn't it? So Jacques, Jacques, who's pointing out Orlando's worst fault is to be in love, he accuses him of all his pretty answers and his pretty poems being nothing more than cunning and self-serving to try ultimately to satisfy his heart's desire, not springing from the pure font of love, right? Whereas uh, Orlando replies, not so, but I answer you, write painted cloth from whence you have studied your questions. In other words, if Jacques is accusing Orlando of being disingenuous, Orlando denies it and fires the charge right back <laughs> that Jacques questions his whole manner of interrogating and accusing Orlando springs from the dry pages of old painted books, of old manuscripts and texts not coming from uh, the, the, the font of the heart, not brimming over from experience, but learned from dry, withered pages. And so we get this sense that Jacques, for all his apparent learning and his grave and melancholy air, uh, is ultimately sort of himself a dry and empty book. He's empty of all human feeling. And he's, you know, when Orlando says, uh, I am weary of you. I think we, as the reader, are a bit weary of him too. <laughs> Likewise, Jacques has a conversation with Rosalind later, which is wonderful. I prithee, he says, pretty youth, let me be better acquainted with thee. Rosalind says, they say you are a melancholy fellow. And Jacques replies, I am so. I do love it better than laughing. Rosalind those that are in extremity of either are abominable fellows and betray themselves to every modern censure worse than drunkards. Jacques, why, tis good to be sad and say nothing. Rosalind, why then, tis good to be a post. Jacques, I have neither the scholar's melancholy, which is emulation, nor the musician's. I'll skip over some of this. He enumerates seven types of melancholy, but in the end he concludes, but it is a melancholy of mine own, compounded of many simples, extracted from many objects, 
and indeed the sundry contemplation of my travels, in which my often rumination wraps me in a most humorous sadness. And Rosalind interrupts him. A traveler? By my faith you have great reason to be sad. I fear you have sold your own lands to see other men's. Then to have seen much and to have nothing is to have rich eyes and poor hands. So, this is her condemnation of Jacques. And I think we can hear in this Shakespeare's condemnation of all those who have, to use her phrase, sold their lands to see other men's, and in the end gained nothing. So this is, so Jacques it comes off very unfavorably. We can say that in Orlando and Rosalind, in their kind of innocent playfulness, the first blossoming of love, they have a wisdom which surpasses that of the learned and melancholy Jacques. And likewise, I don't have time to get into all the comparisons, but they come off very well compared with Touchstone, this gesture from the court, who exemplifies a kind of, um, a kind of inane wit. <laughs> he has this whole conversation with a shepherd in the forest of Arden about the difference between the courtly customs and the customs of the country. And uh, Touchstone, through really sophistry, and uh, inane arguments is trying to convince this shepherd that the ways of the court are really the best ways for all. And uh, so he, he makes his argument. Okay, I'm at 15 minutes, but I'm going to exceed my time by a little bit here. Just turn off the timer. Just to finish up this thought. So um, he makes this argument to the shepherd that the ways of the court, the manners of the court really apply to all men. And if anyone doesn't have them, well, he's in danger of being damned, really. <laughs> and the shepherd, out of his simplicity, makes a beautiful reply to Touchstone. He says, Sir, I am a true laborer. I earn that I eat, get that I wear, owe no man hate, envy no man's happiness, glad of other men's good, content with my harm. And the greatest of my pride is to see my ewes graze and my lambs suck must be one of the most beautiful passages in all Shakespeare. <laughs> it reminds us, doesn't it, of Henry VI, who, uh, in the midst of battles and political intrigue, dreams of leading a simple life as a shepherd, right? And uh, this shepherd from the forest of Arden, Corin, really illustrates the beauty of that life. And by so doing, shows us the unintentional comedy and the vacuousness of Touchstone and all that he represents which is the courtly life of intrigue and politics. And little need be said about the new duke, of course, in his uh, calculating, well, we can't even say calculating, in his political machinations and his um, volatile temper and his perpetual suspiciousness, never at peace, never at rest. He exemplifies a kind of political wisdom, almost a Machiavellian kind of a wisdom, right? A worldly wisdom. But all of, these, all of these archetypes of different kinds of wisdom, different characters, different ways that the soul is formed, the one formed by much study and travel, the other formed by being steeped in politics and learning how to acquit yourself in politics, or by grasping after power and uh, you know, exterminating all rivals <laughs> ruthlessly. Well, all these, different, all these different souls that have been formed by different kinds of lives, although on their own they might appear in some way attractive or impressive, 
when they're compared with the pure blazing fire of the souls of Orlando and Rosalind, which are all alight from within with the fire of love, all these other ones come off as empty and pale and sort of meaningless and pointless, right? And so I, I wouldn't venture so far as to say that Shakespeare is a, a hopeless romantic, but I think in this play we see Shakespeare as a romantic. He is, I think, making the point here that the wisdom, which is engendered by love, surpasses all other forms of wisdom, even in its innocence, in its apparent naivete, in its purity, in its almost childlikeness. It surpasses the wisdom of the learned and the powerful, the wise and the great. And uh, Rosalind, and to a lesser extent Orlando, but I think especially Rosalind, really captures our hearts because in her, we see <laughs> all the perfections, if you want, of, uh, she's sort of like the archetypal sweetheart, you know, the archetypal beloved. She's playful, she's modest, she, um, you know, is, uh, <laughs> well, she, she, the way that she plays and flirts with Orlando and, and sort of it seems to be the master of every conversation and every exchange, it's very endearing. So it's a beautiful romance, this play, uh, as you like it. This is, I think, the last comedy of Shakespeare's that we're going to read in the Shakespeare 2020 project. I might be wrong about that, but um, I know next week we go to Macbeth. Then we're going to go to Lord of the Rings for a long time. And once we pick up again in April, I think we've got nothing but some tragedies or historical plays to kind of round out the year. So I might be mistaken, but I think this is the last comedy. And if so, I think this is a marvelous one to end on. It's not Shakespeare's best work, dramatically speaking. We have several moments of deus ex machina, um, which are just sort of unexplained. <laughs> uh, and so plot-wise, this play has a number of holes. It's not totally uh, satisfying. But it's made up for, I think, by the characters, of, especially the character of Rosalind, her romance with Orlando, and this central theme, which is, uh, is worth meditating upon, of the wisdom of love and uh, the wisdom of the simple, which confounds the great. Now, I've gone for 20 minutes, but uh, still doing pretty well on time. I want to share with you a few thoughts about Tolkien. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. So a couple things to share from Tolkien's letters that I've been reading this week. One that I was really gratified to see is that, uh, I don't know if you were listening to my podcast uh, back then, but in 2018, in one of the very, very first episodes of this podcast, I shared about a book I read by C.S. Lewis, and that book was called uh, Out of the Silent Planet. It's the first book in his space trilogy. And, um, you know, I, I've heard, so I've heard various kinds of reviews of the space trilogy. Um, some people, most of the people that I've talked to really love it. But then most of the people I talk to are seminarians <laughs> or priests or 
uh, fervent Catholics with philosophical training. Um, <laughs> and uh, so it, in a certain way, it makes sense because out of the silent planet, it is in a certain way a thriller. It's a, it's a science fiction novel. It's an adventure. But it's a combination also of myth. So it's not simply, it, it's not the kind of science fiction or fantasy that we're really used to in this day and age. It is... Um, yeah, it, it overlaps with myth, with mythos. And so it's not, it's not simply story. It also has an allegorical level, as most of Lewis's writing does, like the Narnia series. And the allegorical level is speaking to us quite plainly about the fall of man and original sin, also the fall of the angels. And um, it, it, it attempts to communicate through the language of fantasy and science fiction something of the Christian worldview and cosmology of uh, a cosmos that is, you know, it's not simply ticking away according to its own laws, but is the, pro is the, 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 the handiwork of a creator God who's deeply involved with it and the effects of free will on that cosmos and all this sort of thing. So I was very gratified to read Letter 26 by Tolkien to his publishers. Apparently he and Lewis used the same publisher Allen and Unwin. And uh, there's a great letter where apparently his publisher had asked Tolkien for his review of Out of the Silent Planet. They had another reader who worked for the publisher who dismissed it as bunk. But the publisher fortunately asked Tolkien for his opinion, knowing that he had also read it. And so Tolkien responds in a, in a really lovely way, and I really agree with him. Now, he's not a, a um, he's not the kind of friend who thinks it's helpful to just not give any criticism. <laughs> so he, he, he writes honestly, he says, my first criticism of the book is simply that it was too short for both practical and artistic reasons. Other criticisms concerning narrative style, Lewis is always apt to have rather creaking, <laughs> stiff-jointed passages. Inconsistent details in the plot and philology have since been corrected to my satisfaction. He goes off for quite a while about language and Lewis's invented words which, of course, are not up to Tolkien standards. But, of course, Lewis was not a philologist, so <laughs> it makes some sense, right? Then he concludes, I was disturbed by your reader's report. I am afraid that at the first blush, I feel inclined to retort that anyone capable of using the word bunk will inevitably find matter of this sort. Bunk. <laughs> which I love. In other words, the kind of critic who's capable of making that facile of a criticism is sure to find much to criticize. <laughs> That's my interpretation of Tolkien's words there. Um, he goes on to talk about, yeah, how this is not only a story, but a myth. Um, he, says, he says, the story had for the more intelligent reader a great number of philosophical and mythical implications that enormously enhanced without detracting from the surface adventure. I found the blend of vera historia, true history, with mythos or myth irresistible. There are, of course, certain satirical elements inevitable in any such traveler's tale, and also a spice of satire on other superficially similar works of scientific fiction. Uh, blah, blah, blah. I want to get to his final conclusion. Yeah, I've probably said more than enough, he says. I, at any rate, should have bought this story at almost any price if I had found it in print and loudly recommended it as a thriller by, however, and surprisingly, an intelligent man. 
but I know only too sadly from efforts to find anything to read, even with an on-demand subscription at a library, that my taste is not normal. <laughs> so this is his conclusion about Out of the Silent Planet. I found it really delightful. He's acknowledging that his taste is probably not that of the average everyday reader. And so perhaps, uh, <laughs> perhaps the other critic's criticism is justified in that particular domain, you know, because this is a work of, of science fiction, which is not, it's not simply a story. It's, it's much, it has much greater depths than that. But for that reason, Tolkien highly commends it. And for that reason, I regard it as one of my favorite novels, my favorite series of all time. Lewis's Space Trilogy is really so excellent. So it was just a delight for me to read Tolkien's review of his friend Lewis's first novel in the Space Trilogy. Now, another letter uh, of a very different tone is Tolkien's response to their German publisher, which was uh, Rutten and Learning of Potsdam. And so they had gotten The Hobbit translated to German. They found a publisher for it. But the German publisher, now this was 1938, and the German publishers wrote back to Tolkien's publishers in England asking for confirmation whether Tolkien was of Aryan origin. And this infuriated Tolkien. And I have to say his response uh, made me tremendously proud of him <laughs> and really endeared him to me in a deep way. So listen to this. First, this is what he says to his English publisher. He says, I must say, the enclosed letter from Rutten and Learning is a bit stiff. Do I suffer this impertinence because of the possession of a German name? Or do their lunatic laws require a certificate of Aryan origin from all persons of all countries? Personally, I should be inclined to refuse to give any confirmation, although it happens that I can, and let a German translation go hang. In any case, I should object strongly to any such declaration appearing in print. I do not regard the probable absence of all Jewish blood as necessarily honorable, and I have many Jewish friends and should regret giving any color to the notion that I subscribed to this wholly pernicious and unscientific race doctrine. And then finally, here is the letter he actually sent, or that the publishers sent on his behalf. He wrote it, and they sent it to the German publishing house. Dear sirs, thank you for your letter. I regret that I am not clear as to what you intend by Erish, which is the German word for Aryan. I am not of Aryan extraction, that is, Indo-Iranian. As far as I am aware, none of my ancestors spoke Hindustani, Persian, Gypsy, or any related dialects. But if I am to understand that you are inquiring whether I am of Jewish origin, I can only reply that I regret that I appear to have no ancestors of that gifted people. My great-great-grandfather came to England in the 18th century from Germany. The main part of my descent is therefore purely English, and I am an English subject, which should be sufficient. I have been accustomed, nonetheless, to regard my German name with pride, and continue to do so throughout the period of the late regrettable war in which I served in the English army. I cannot, however, forbear to comment that if impertinent and irrelevant inquiries of this sort are to become the rule in matters of literature, then the time is not far distant when a German name will no longer be a source of pride. Your inquiry is doubtless made in order to comply with the laws of your own country, but that this should be held to apply to the subjects of another state would be improper, 
even if it had, as it has not, any bearing whatsoever on the merits of my work or its suitability for publication, of which you appear to have satisfied yourselves without reference to my descendants or genealogy. The German word is Abstammung. I trust you will find this reply satisfactory and remain yours faithfully. J.R.R. Tolkien. And those were letters 29 and 30 in the collected letters. Isn't that marvelous? <laughs> I regret to inform you that I, have, that I appear to have no ancestors among that gifted people. So uh, I really appreciate Tolkien uh, for this, yeah, this, uh, this sort of full-throated resistance to the German publisher's requirement that he provide confirmation of his Aryan genealogy, of, of the purity of his blood, you know, in order to publish his work for a German audience. He wasn't willing to go along with the requirement. And uh, he, made his, he, made his, he made his position loud and clear. So I appreciate that, especially as someone with Jewish ancestry myself. Now, it's very far back. But um, some of you may know the furthest, the furthest I've been able to trace our family tree on my mom's side uh, ends up going back to the Sephardim, and, which are, of course, the, uh, the, the Jews of the Iberian Peninsula who were exiled from Spain and Portugal and sort of went into diaspora around Europe. So our family went to uh, Amsterdam and then to London, and they intermarried with English and Irish folks and then ended up going to Australia and then from Australia to the west coast of America. And my great-grandmother, whose birthday is today, uh, it was born and raised in Australia, you know. And so, anyway, that's, that's the family history on that side. So the furthest back that we can trace the family uh, are to the Sephardim who lived in, around Amsterdam. I haven't managed to trace anyone actually back to Spain or Portugal yet, but I'm still working on that in my free time <laughs> once in a while. So I, I, I really appreciate uh, Tolkien's stand that he takes in that letter. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention is that there's a wonderful new book that just came out. It's being published actually by Word on Fire uh, Press, which is Bishop Robert Barron's you know, outlet. Um, but they've got a new imprint, a new series. They're calling Word on Fire Academic. They've just started it. And the first book in the new series I'm so excited about is called Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages by Dr. Holly Ordway. So the point of this book is that, um, you know, Tolkien scholarship has tended to, to presume that Tolkien himself only basically read medieval literature <laughs> and works older. And so Humphrey Carpenter, who wrote his authorized biography and who also edited the collected letters that I'm reading from, Carpenter has a line apparently in his biography where he says that for Tolkien, English literature ended with Chaucer. <laughs> and he, he makes the point that Tolkien, basically for him, modern literature was an oxymoron. He didn't read anything contemporary. He only read old stuff, right? But of course, this is nonsense. And I know even from reading a few of the letters where Tolkien keeps constantly, constantly referring to other works that are contemporary, contemporaneous with his own, of course, including Lewis's and the other Inklings. He reads all their novels, you know, and, and their writings. So um, the point that Dr. Ordway is making in this new book is she, she, she traces Tolkien's influences and she makes reference to all the, the works that he has read, not only from medieval times, but from his own times. 
and from other time periods. So she's tracing the different influences on the Lord of the Rings and the other Middle-earth novels and stories. It's important because, as I heard, I listened to an interview with Dr. Ordway and Brandon Voigt from Word on Fire talking about the launch of this new book. And she explains that Humphrey Carpenter, who wrote the biography and, the, and edited the letters, he was ideologically opposed to Tolkien. He, he's an interesting guy. I learned that he's, he was the son of a bishop, an Anglican bishop, the Bishop of Oxford. But by age 21, he was a confirmed atheist, and he died an atheist. So he was roughly contemporary with Tolkien. I think he went to Oxford after Tolkien had already graduated. Maybe he was even teaching there at that time. I don't know. But they were alive in the same time. They had a couple meetings, a couple interviews. Um, and apparently this guy, Carpenter, was kind of fascinated with Tolkien, but also deeply antagonistic, deeply opposed to him and his whole project. And he sort of wormed his way in. And he, he sort of manipulated his way into becoming the author of the authorized biography and the editor of the letters. But in, because of his, uh, his personal bias <laughs> and his stance on Tolkien, uh, so, some claims he makes in the biography and some of the choices of letters and things reflect that lens through which he viewed Tolkien, which I think is interesting. So Dr. Ordway's book is supposed to provide a more complete and a more accurate and truthful picture of Tolkien's influences. You know, because Carpenter wanted to portray him as a kind of a, a retrograde, a reactionary, totally opposed to modernity. Now, to be sure, Tolkien uh, has one foot in the Middle Ages, <laughs> and, if, and he's a faithful Catholic, which makes him sort of timeless, or sort of out of place in any generation, right? Uh, so you see that with him. But Tolkien also has one foot firmly in the modern age, in his own time and place. And Dr. Ordway made the point in the interview that Tolkien, one of his students called him a translator uh, of medieval literature for the modern day. He made it come alive for his students. You know, he made Beowulf, for example, come to life. Not just an old tale out of the past, but something, something vibrant, something new. And Dr. Ordway says, to be a translator, you have to know both languages. So he had one foot, like a bridge, you know, it has to have a foot on both sides of the, of the stream. So he has one foot firmly in the Middle Ages, but the other one firmly in his own time in the modern world. So I'm very excited about this book. <laughs> and I'm going to see if I can find any way to fit it into the schedule for Tolkien 2021, because I really want to read it. Or if not, I suppose there's always next January, but gosh, that's so far away. I hope to find some way to fit it in sooner. Did you know that we are called to be saints? What is a saint? Well, a saint means one who is holy. Now, in the very last minutes of this podcast, I want to share with you about today's saint, a great saint, St. Francis de Sales, Bishop of Geneva and Doctor of the Church. St. Francis de Sales, uh, he died at the very beginning of the 17th century. So he, he lived from the late 16th, late 1500s to the early 1600s, which as you will know, the Protestant Reformation uh, had just sort of taken off. And especially, I think Luther probably had just died or uh, was nearing the end of his life when Francis de Sales was growing up. And John Calvin was really carrying on Luther's project. 
systematizing his theology, coming to his own more radical conclusions, and really uh, radicalizing, especially Geneva, his home city-state. And so Geneva underwent this radical Protestant uh, revolution whereby the churches were whitewashed and the Blessed Sacrament was, de was uh, desecrated. Priests and bishops were hounded out of town, if not murdered. And uh, in the midst of this, Francis de Sales, who was born and raised in France in an area called Ancy, which I had the pleasure of visiting a couple of summers ago, um, he, and he was educated at Paris, and he was a, a wonderful theologian already. Well, he was made the Bishop of Geneva, which is sort of like, I don't think, I can't even imagine a suitable comparison in our day, <laughs> like being made the Bishop of Baghdad or something, <laughs> going into a war zone. So he uh, is appointed Bishop of Geneva. He ends up converting 72,000 Calvinists back to the Catholic faith. And he has to do it kind of in secret, because if he worked publicly, you know, if he went out and preached publicly, they would have stoned him to death. They wouldn't have, you know, that, they, they wouldn't have heard him. But he did his work in secret. He, he would write these beautiful, short, but very compelling tracts about the Catholic faith, refuting Calvinist arguments, and just leave them around. <laughs> and, he, and he would, uh, you know, meet people by night and kind of give instruction, but all done in secrecy. It's like a, a spy versus spy kind of a thing. And uh, he ended up converting, as I say, 72,000 Calvinists and uh, making such immense progress in Geneva. He is actually the patron saint of writers and of communications. So... Um, and so a wonderful saint to invoke for our own efforts in the new evangelization, to ask him to uh, intercede for us and teach us by his example and help us by his merits. St. Francis de Sales, however, also, in the midst of all this powerful missionary work, uh, he did not neglect the work of spiritual direction. And so he, he has a, was a wonderful book called Introduction to the, to the Devout Life, excuse me, stuttering here, because I'm trying to talk fast. <laughs> anyway, he wrote this book, Introduction to the Devout Life, and it's primarily made up of his letters to a certain uh, lady, a certain woman of the world, um, who had come to him asking for direction in how to live a spiritual life in the midst of her state in life, you know, as a woman of some means with a household to run and a husband and probably children and Lots of concerns and cares, but she wanted to live a holy life. So she went to the bishop of her diocese, St. Francis de Sales, and asked for his instruction. In the introduction to his book, Introduction to the Devout Life, the introduction to the introduction, St. <laughs> Francis writes this, and I think it's really, really interesting. Um, he says, this is a caviling age, which I think, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but I think he means this is a, you know, it's a busy time. <laughs> There's Calvinists everywhere, lots of work to do. This is a time of upheaval. And I foresee that many will say that only religious and persons living apart are fit to undertake the guidance of souls in such special devout ways, that it requires more time than a bishop of so important a diocese as mine can spare, and that it must take too much thought from the important duties with which I am charged. But, dear reader, I reply with St. Denis, who was the kind of father of France, the patron saint of France, 
that the task of leading souls towards perfection appertains above all, to, above all others to bishops, and that because their order is supreme among men as the seraphim among the angels, and therefore their leisure cannot be better spent. And he goes on a little later to say, I grant that the guidance of individual souls is a labor, but it is a labor full of consolation, even as that of harvesters and grape gatherers who are never so well pleased as when most heavily laden. Isn't that beautiful? It is a labor which refreshes and invigorates the heart by the comfort which it brings to those who bear it. As is said to be the case with those who carry bundles of cinnamon in Arabia Felix. That must have been a common saying in his day. <laughs> but it's a beautiful, a beautiful analogy. And he goes on to give several more analogies. And then he says, one more thing, dear reader. Unquestionably, it must be a really paternal heart that can do this. And therefore, it is said that the apostles and their apostolic followers, the bishops, are wont to call their disciples, not merely their children, but even more tenderly still, their little children. And we think of St. John the Evangelist, who writes in his epistle, you know, filioli me, my little, my little children. It is too true that I who write about the devout life am not myself devout, but most certainly I am not without the wish to become so. And it is this wish which encourages me to teach you. A notable literary man has said that a good way to learn is to study, a better to listen, and the best to teach. I love that. And St. Augustine says that giving is a claim to receive and teaching a way to learn. So we can see, you can see there his, uh, first of all, his beautiful humility and his modesty. But you see also, I think, just his, his pastoral solicitude as a bishop and as he's a bishop of an important diocese, busy with big important concerns, working on evangelization, probably constantly at th with his life under threat, you know, in grave danger. But he takes the time, and it's a labor of love, to write these letters of spiritual direction for this particular lady. And they have borne such fruit for the church. So he's a wonderful model for bishops, I think, <laughs> I dare to say, and probably for pastors too, um, who can tend to become bogged down with administrative concerns that are, are you know, a great way to use our free time, <laughs> our leisure, is in giving direction to souls who are hungry to go deeper and to, um, to or if you want to say it this way, to ascend to the heights, to show them the path, to reach the heights. Not because we're spiritual experts. He admits that himself. <laughs> he's a, I love it. He's a saint and a doctor of the church. He says, I admit that I am not myself devout, but I desire it. And that desire encourages me to share with you. So he speaks from the desire for holiness. And that's such a consolation for us too, that we know if we, if we have truly the desire to lead a devout life and to please Jesus, the, the, that, that, the, the desire already in some way indicates the possession, the fulfillment. It's not perfect, you know, and if even St. Francis can't say, I live a truly devout life, then surely I cannot, maybe some of you can, but uh, we, as long as we have the desire, as long as we have that zeal, which inspired all the saints to keep trying, to keep striving, then we can say in a certain sense, we already, we already possess the goal. <laughs> we're, already, we're already there in some sense. You know what I mean? 
I mean, there's still, there's still a vast journey to go. There's much work to be done. But the desire already is in some way the possession of the desired object. Now, what is the devout life? I want to read to you a little bit of St. Francis de Sales here. I got about five minutes left. So I'll read to you a little segment. So chapter one of Introduction to the Devout Life, he says, um, talking about different religious people, one man sets great value on fasting and believes himself to be leading a very devout life so long as he fasts rigorously, although all the while his heart is full of bitterness. And while he will not moisten his lips with wine, perhaps not even with water in his great abstinence, he does not scruple to steep them in his neighbor's blood through slander and detraction. Another man reckons himself as devout because he repeats many prayers daily, although at the same time he does not refrain from all manner of angry, irritating, conceited, or insulting speeches among his family and neighbors. This man freely opens his purse in almsgiving, but closes his heart to all gentle and forgiving feelings. While that one is ready to forgive his enemies, but will never pay his rightful debts, save under pressure. And meanwhile, all these people are conventionally called religious, but nevertheless, they are in no true sense really devout. So here's his definition of the devout life. All true and living devotion presupposes the love of God. And indeed, it is neither more nor less than a very real love of God, though not always of the same kind. For that love, while shining on the soul, we call grace, which makes us acceptable to his divine majesty. And when it strengthens us to do well, it is called charity. But when it attains its fullest perfection, in which it not only leads us to do well, but to act carefully, diligently, and promptly, then it is called devotion. So we can consider devotion, the devout life, to be the fullest flowering of the gift of God's love. And this is just my interpretation, you know. But so God's love, which is poured out into our hearts. You know, we know um, we love God because he first loved us. That's the great principle of the spiritual life, right? And so the love of God is first poured into our hearts. And that first reception of his love we call grace. And he continually gives us grace. And that grace, which we habitually have in the heart, is called sanctifying grace. It's the grace that makes us holy, so it's not just the love of God that we experience in a transitory way, but the love of God that we habitually possess. That's sanctifying grace. It makes the soul holy. And it's synonymous with charity. Charity being the very love of God which animates us. St. Paul says, Caritas Christi urget nos. The love of God urges us onward. But that, 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 that gift of grace, that infused charity when it reaches its fullest maturity, its fullest flowering, that is what St. Francis de Sales calls devotion. And so the, the devout life, the life of devotion, is the life of the love of God, which is lived out in a way that's fully mature and, and, and fully integrated. So all the areas of life, uh, whatever our state in life is, whatever our duties are, they, they are all integrated, they're all bound up together and deeply united by the love of God, by charity, by grace. So everything we do, he says, we act carefully, diligently, and promptly in the ways of God. It's no longer such a great struggle <laughs> for us to act virtuously, but we do it almost without thinking. We do it habitually. And all of our actions are characterized by peace 
and by love. He goes on to write, the ostrich, (laughs) the ostrich never flies, okay? The hen rises with difficulty and achieves but a brief and rare flight. But the eagle, the dove, and the swallow are continually on the wing and soar high. Even so, sinners do not rise towards God, for all their movements are earthly and earthbound. Well-meaning people who have not as yet attained a true devotion attempt a manner of flight by means of their good actions, but rarely, slowly, and heavily, while really devout men rise up to God frequently and with a swift and soaring wing. In short, devotion is simply a spiritual activity and liveliness by means of which divine love works in us and causes us to work briskly and lovingly. And just as charity leads us to a general picture, to a general practice, excuse me, of all God's commandments, so devotion leads us to practice them readily and diligently. And finally, I'll leave you with this passage, at the very end of chapter one. The difference between love and devotion is just that which exists between fire and flame. Love being a spiritual fire, which becomes devotion when it is fanned into a flame. And what devotion adds to the fire of love is that flame which makes it eager, energetic, and diligent, not merely in obeying God's commandments, but in fulfilling his divine counsels and inspirations. You can see why St. Francis is the patron saint of writers. I mean, he's a spectacular writer. He is said to have been a great preacher as well. So um, I, I'm inclined this day to really pray to him and ask for his, his blessing, his prayers and intercession for me to be a good communicator of the gospel. And also to be inspired to live a truly devout life and to fan the fire of God's love into a flame. And I ask that same grace for all of you who are listening to this podcast. I really encourage you, if you uh, feel so inclined, to go and read his book, Introduction to the Devout Life. It provides a great kind of step-by-step, taking you by the hand (laughs) and leading you through uh, uh, through the, what he calls the divine ladder, you know, of how to ascend and to, to go from a first conversion to really living a devout life. And what a sweet life that is. So I highly recommend it. He was kind of also, this is my last point, he's one of the, the I don't know if we could really say the first, but he's one of the greatest apostles of the laity and the lay vocation and what it means to live holy and devout lives in the midst of the world and our many occupations, you know. And that applies even to diocesan priests in a way. I mean, we're not laity. Uh, I mean, I'm laity. I'm a, I'm a seminarian. But diocesan priests are clergy, but they live in the world, you know, amongst many cares and concerns. But for diocesan priests, for lay people, for parents of families, for, you know, married couples, children, for those who have uh, careers. I mean, all of us, no one is accepted from the call to holiness. We're all called to live devout lives. It's going to look different for each one of us, depending on our state in life, but we're all called to sanctity and to this devout life, St. Francis. So beautifully illustrates and explains and teaches. Now to conclude the podcast, I think I might be a little bit over an hour and I'm going to be a little bit late maybe to my appointment, but um, I'll just... Give her a call and let her know. I, I, uh, at any rate, I think the timer helped me to keep closer <laughs> to my goal of a time limit. 
So we'll conclude now with this collect prayer for the day, the day of uh, St. Francis de Sales. This is the collect from the Mass and the Divine Office. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O God, who didst will that thy blessed confessor and bishop, Francis, should become all things to all men, mercifully grant unto us that we, being filled with the sweetness of thy heavenly love, may so take to ourselves his admonitions and be strengthened by his prayers, that in the end we may, we may with him attain unto thine everlasting joy. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. My friends, may Almighty God bless you, may he protect you from all evil, and may he bring you to everlasting life. Have a great weekend. God bless.